that is, uh, those two clips are from Mad Men, the series, and obviously they're trying to figure out what their boss's painting means. <laughs> and then it's from the series Rectify, where this older man takes a guy around town and then he eventually ends up in a pasture field and he shows him this sculptor. So it relates to some of the things we're going to be looking at today. We're continuing our series through the role of the Spirit. We're looking at various places in Scripture where we see His nature and the role in our lives. Today, we're going to be looking at a passage from the Old Testament uh, in hopes of seeing something, maybe feeling something, maybe touching on some beauty there. Uh, Well, again, my name is Craig Lotz. If you don't know me, I'm the Creative Arts Coordinator here at Grace. I've been a part of Grace pretty much since the beginning. Uh, I came on staff in 95, uh, full-time in 99, and over 25 years of helped with just shaping the vision of the arts here at the church. Patrick asked me a few weeks ago to, to, to cover this topic, and when he told me what it was uh, in Exodus, uh, I got pretty excited, and I'll tell you why as we, as we move forward. So let's jump right in, okay? So if you can, stand and join me in Exodus 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ohaliab, the son of Ahismach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men the ability that they may make all that I have commanded you the tent of the meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, with all its garments for the Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priest, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do." It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So why this passage? You know, what, what are we looking to draw out of this? Well, did you see quickly there in verses 3 and 4? Did you notice that? He says, and I have filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God with the ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, filled with the Spirit. Wait a minute. I thought that only happened in the New Testament. What's going on here? Bezalel is appointed to create all these pieces for worship, and he's filled with the Spirit of God, the ability, the intelligence, the knowledge, the craftsmanship to devise artistic designs. So the first person in all of Scripture filled with God's Spirit before Pentecost was an artist. Think God loves creativity? So as we look a little more closely at this passage, I want to pull out some implications from it and apply it to our lives. I need to take a a good portion of it for the first point. His beauty is all around us. So is there a window here as we look at what's going on into God's character and nature. Well, back in the early 90s, uh, when I first started here, well, mid-90s, uh, I, as I 
was getting on board, I wanted to do a, a study with the artist to kind of get us all on the same page of, okay, where, where are we heading? What are we trying to do? And I had this little booklet that I had gotten from an arts conference. It's called Art in the Bible, and it's by Francis Schaeffer. And crazy enough, a good portion of it is on this passage. So when Patrick said, hey, do you want to talk about Exodus 31 and Bezalel? I was like, hmm, let me think about that. Yes. <laughs> Schaefer unpacks a lot in that booklet. There's a lot. We could spend the whole morning just talking about the booklet. But I want to pull out three things, make some practical applications to it. Um, so let me do that now. In his booklet, now, now the making of the the. the all the pieces and the tabernacle, it's, it's through Exodus, it's in Second Chronicles, it's in various places in the Old Testament. But I'm just pulling out three pieces. In Exodus 25, it says this, And on the lampstand there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds and branches shall all be of one piece with the lampstand, hammered out of pure gold. Now, Schaefer points this out about the lampstand, or, or candlesticks, it's also referred to. He says, and how is it decorated? Not with representations of angels, but with representations of nature, flowers, blossoms, things of natural beauty. And these are to be in the tabernacle at the command of God in the middle of the place of worship. Not just religious symbols, but symbols from nature. Let's continue. Let's look at what's instructed on the design of the priest's garments. Exodus 28. It says, And on its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns round its hem with bells of gold between them. Schaefer says this. He says, Now in nature... Pomegranates are red, but these pomegranates were to be blue, purple, and scarlet. Now, purple and scarlet could be natural changes in the growth of a pomegranate, but blue isn't. The implication is that there is freedom to make something which gets its impetus from nature, but can be different from it, and it too can be brought into the presence of God. You can see God at play, having a lot of fun. One more, Second Chronicles talking about the pillars. It says, in front of the house, he made two pillars, 35 cubits high, with a capital of five cubits on the top of each. He made chains like a necklace and put on them on the tops of the pillars. And he made a hundred pomegranates and put them on the chains. He set up the pillars in front of the temple. Schaefer says this. He says, here are two freestanding columns. They're supported by no architectural weight, and had no utilitarian engineering significance. They were there only because God said they should be there as a thing of beauty. If we understand what we are reading here, it simply takes our breath away. This is something overwhelmingly beautiful. Now, he continues on with a lot of other examples. There's another one in Second Chronicles where it talks about that there's a, a pool that's estimated held 10,000 gallons of water and it's being held up by oxen and there's lilies carved into the side of it just for sheer beauty. And the idea is that you're supposed to walk in and be overwhelmed with beauty and wonder. That God is at play and that you're reminded that you are entering to worship the God of all creation. 
Now, in design, in artistic design, some of you have probably heard of this, there's a term called form and function. Something can be beautiful, aesthetically pleasing, but it's also designed with a purpose. So, for instance, let's say you're building a house, and you want to make your master shower look like a cave or a rainforest with a tree limb coming out of the side for the shower head. It can be really cool that it looks like a rainforest, but it still needs to function as a shower, right? The plumbing still needs to work. So what's going on here? What's the form and function? Like, why didn't God just tell the uh, Bezalel and them to just write words on the side of, the, uh, of their garments? Like, just words about him. Why imagery? Why are you looking at pomegranates in nature? Or is it saying something in a way that is even more than if you gave you a word? Is it in a, in a way, just like the clip, is it making you feel something? Does it make you think something? Is it making your heart hurt and long for something more? There's a lot of places in Scripture where God has done this. I'll give you two, two more examples. Joshua 4. They've crossed the River Jordan. God commands them to set up a monument. Listen to this. He says, That this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Now, again, why didn't he just tell the leaders, why didn't he just say, hey, make sure to tell the kids, remember. What's the deal with the rocks? You know, I know it's a rock. Bug's life. Anybody all see that? Sorry. <laughs> My brain speaks in clips. Sorry. I'm going to wear a t-shirt that says, I speak clips. Um, what is it about that? What is it about looking at the rocks and, and, and it, you're reminded, the imagery sticks with you? And I'm sure there was an artist there, several artists who were like, okay, and don't just stack them like that. They need to be in odd numbers, threes and fives, and make sure, wait a minute, move the rock, the big rock around to the back. <laughs> There's always purpose with it. Here's another one from Ezekiel 4. God instructs the prophet Ezekiel to bake bread over human dung. Do you any remember this story? And Ezekiel says, no, I can't do it. I've never defiled myself. I won't do that. God says, fine, okay, you can bake it over cow's dung. Like, okay, that's a little better. Thank you. <laughs> What's going on there? Like, there's symbolism, and, and through this, through this illustration... He's to show that, you know, you're going to be taken into captivity. You're going to have to eat things you, don't, you didn't want to eat. And you're, you have been defiled. Like your worship, your devotion to me has been defiled. So there's symbolism in it. But why didn't he just say it? Why didn't he just say, well, you know, all of this is like crap, you know? <laughs> or is there something about it <laughs> that you don't forget the look or the smell I mean, scripture is so much more edgy, man. If we did stuff like that on, on Sunday morning, <laughs> you all go, okay, you're over the top. Really? I'm over the top? <laughs> so those are just two examples. Michael Card says this in his book, Scribbling in the Sand, about the imagination. He says, 
The imagination is the bridge between the heart and the mind, integrating both, allowing us to think and understand with our hearts and feel and emote with our minds. It is a vehicle for truth. Through the use of images, metaphors, stories, and paradoxes that demand our attention, it calls for our interaction. The imagination is a powerful means for communicating truths about God. And so God shows an awesome regard for the imagination in his word. I believe the human imagination is the door at which Jesus stands and knocks in Revelation 3.20. He's knocking on the door of what we dream for, what we long for, what we're seeing. So back to Exodus 31. Bezalel, filled with God's spirit, showcasing nature and creation all through the tabernacle is constantly pointing to the creator of the universe, right? And so just like a painting, a film, a great work of art that is constantly reflecting that artist's nature or character, if you look at a piece out in the gallery, it is a window into that artist. So what is the window in here to God? And how is he speaking all the time? Isaiah 55 talks about God's word being poured out like rain and snow all over the whole earth and that it will not come back void. And many mention that it is, it, it's a reference to that if you share a verse or if you share God's word with somebody, that it's not going to return in vain. And there's truth to that. But Ken Geyer in Windows of the Soul presses down a little deeper on this passage. Listen to what he says. He says, like rain and snow, the word of God permeates the earth. To say God's word can be found only in certain places, like the Bible, for example, is to say, in effect, that rainwater can be found only in lakes where it is most visible. But everywhere we look, there are traces of his word. In history, in the circumstances of our lives, in every nook of humanity, in every crannied flower of creation. If we look with the right eyes and listen with the right ears, we will understand the natural creation as a form of sign language through which God expresses himself. He is speaking all the time. And he's wired it into his universe. It reminded me of this scene. We've used it before, but it's worth looking at again. It's from the film Amazing Grace. It's about the life of William Wilberforce and his push to abolish slave trading in Great Britain. He also ended up writing the song Amazing Grace. But in this scene, listen to what he says about um, being surprised by God. at the kitchen door. Uh, I would turn him away, sir, but you insisted I always check. Uh, just give him breakfast. Very good, sir. Richard? Sir? 
I know that lying down on the wet grass is not a normal thing to do. None of my business, sir. Truth is, uh, I've been even more strange than usual lately, haven't I? Uh, it's God. I have 10,000 engagements of state today, but I would prefer to spend the day out here getting a wet arse, studying dandelions and marvelling at bloody spider's webs. You found God, sir? I think he found me. If you have any idea how inconvenient that is. How idiotic it will sound. I have a political career glittering ahead of me, and in my heart I want spiders webbed. It is a sad fate for a man to die too well known to everybody else and still unknown to himself. Francis Bacon. I don't just dust your books, sir. I don't just dust your books. <laughs> That's awesome. God is speaking all the time. Vincent Van Gogh said this. He said, all nature seems to speak. Uh, years ago, Bono of the rock band U2 was asked to speak at the National Day of Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., and he said this. It says, after speaking at the National Day of Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., Bono was asked why... If he is a Christian, his music doesn't proclaim Christ. He replied, does nature scream the name of Christ? Does a tree? That's really deep. <laughs> I love it. I love, I love how he answers a question with a question. Of course it does. It's screaming all the time. All of nature is speaking all the time. Through the trees, rocks, people, creation, every one of us are made in his image and we're constantly trying to tell his story. Whether it's through images, whether it's through stories, whether it's through songs, it's as if all of it already exists when we're, when we're creating things as artists and we're just pulling it out. Stephen King said this in his book on writing. He said, stories are found things like fossils in the ground. They are relics, part of an undiscovered pre-existing world. The writer's job is to use the tools in his or her toolbox to get as much of each one out of the ground intact as possible. I've read a lot of interviews over the years with artists. It's just fun. I love to know what they're thinking, what went into why they made what they made. And I can't tell you how many times I've come across, whether it's a filmmaker, a songwriter, whoever, and they almost tell you it's like they found the art. Like it didn't start with them. It's like, I mean, I heard, read an interview with Chris Martin of Coldplay where he said it's like fishing. It's like the song is already there and I'm just pulling it in and kind of polishing it off and preparing it for the meal. Josh Whedon, uh, director of Avengers first film and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, he said this about stories and how they connect with us. He said, we use stories to connect, to care about people, to care about a situation, to turn the mundane heroic to make people really think about who they are. Because if I wrote about what I really think, I would be so sad all the time. We create to fill a gap, not just to avoid the idea of dying, it's to fill some particular gap in ourselves. 
So I have a need to create. Hopefully, that need gets translated into somebody relating to it and feeling hope. Artists, we as human beings, artists, all of us, all the time are, are looking to images, songs, stories, constantly trying to understand why we're here, what gives our life meaning and purpose, what should we be living for, and his creation is screaming all the time. Side note. So for some reason lately, I've been listening to a lot of yacht rock. Uh, sorry. Soft rock from the 70s and 80s. I just can't see it. It seems to be playing on my Spotify a lot lately. Anyways, a few weeks ago, I'm riding to the store with my grandson, Sully, and all of a sudden, uh, the song from uh, Christopher Cross, Sailing, comes on. Uh, let's, play a, let's play a piece. So I look in the rearview mirror halfway during the song, and I see Sully back there. He's less than three. He's, well, he'll be three in October, but he's swaying. He is so into the song, man. He's just eating it up. Now, he's too young, right, to know whether it's cool or not, to like a Grammy Award-winning song from 1979, okay? It's not why he likes it. It's just peaceful. You know, he's just swaying to the music like he's sailing. And of course, as you can see in those lyrics, there's a lot going on there. I mean, we could spend a few minutes talking about how that even relates to this series. Again, my mind speaks in bites. But, but it also reminded me of another time with his dad, Bryce, my son. When Bryce was about four or five, I remember riding in the car and for some reason, the theme song to Rocky came on, the first movie, you know, dun, dun, da, da, da. And he just loved it, was just eating it up. And again, he had never seen the movie, doesn't know why he should like it, but it just made him pumped, made him want to run around and drink raw eggs, if you've ever, <laughs> if you've ever seen the movie. Why are we wired like this? What is it about... Images, songs, stories that's constantly speaking to us. It's in the most complicated things. It's in the most artistic. It's in the simplest things. It could be in a commercial blockbuster based on a ride at Disney. I hardly believe in ghost stories anymore, Captain Bobloso. I. That's exactly what I thought when we were first told the tale. Buried on an island of the dead, what cannot be found except for those who know where it is. Find it, we did. There be the chest. Inside be the gold. 
We took them all. We spent them and traded them. Inflicted them away. Drink and food and pleasurable company. The more we gave them away, the more we came to realize the drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths. And all the pleasurable company in the world could not slake our lust. We accursed men, Miss Turner. Compelled by greed we were, but now we are consumed by it. For too long I've been parched of thirst and unable to quench it. Too long I've been starving to death and haven't died. I feel nothing. Not the wind on my face, nor the spray of the sea. You best start believing in ghost stories, Miss Turner. You're in one. You best start believing in ghost stories. You're in one. He talks about cursed men being filled with greed. We can all relate to that on a deep level somewhere. And obviously it doesn't take much to connect that to the fall. Is that what the writer meant? No, they're just simply tapping into something that's powerful. But there's something about it when you're watching it that resonates, that makes you feel something, see something, that almost haunts something inside of you. That's what makes it good. It's not just because it's about pirates. I'm telling you. Theologian and philosopher Abraham Heschel said this about the power of great art. He said, a work of art introduces us to emotions which we have never cherished before. Great works produce rather than satisfy needs by giving the world fresh cravings. That's what it means in that clip at the beginning when he says it's the beauty that hurts the most. It makes you hunger. It makes you long for something. And so as artists, you know, we got to get it out of us. We got to sing. We got to write. We got to sculpt. We got to somehow get it out and talk about what we're wanting and talk about how we're hungering for more. But the beauty is never enough. And this is what C.S. Lewis says in this famous quote that I'm sure you've seen before. He says, The book or the art in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was a longing. They are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never visited. We are moved by this imagery, by story, by our hearts being stirred by our imagination. But, but the, the problem can be that we keep thinking more beauty is the answer. That we just need uh, another song, another film, another TikTok video. Or maybe we're not after something beautiful but someone. Beauty personified. From the Gospel of John, he, he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Tim Keller said this, he said in, you know, in Genesis when it talks about God speaking 
into creation. His word brings everything into creation. That word isn't just God's voice. That word is Jesus. That is Jesus bringing everything into creation. Everything through him. And just a side note, sometimes we almost act like, like God and Satan are like equal creators and one's good and one's bad and we just got to pick the good, you know? Satan is not a creative being in that sense, okay? He doesn't create from nothing. All he can do is create from what was already created. And it's always tainted in fall. It's as if he was in the bakery with God, but he's taking the recipes and he's playing around with them. God is the source of all beauty, goodness, and truth. He is the source of everything. There's nowhere you can go on this planet. Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. If it's a trace of beauty, it's his. It's all his. That's my sec- but that's my second point, and this is what we long for, his beauty in us. Every artistic endeavor, you've heard me say this before the last time I was up here, Every artist is essentially trying to do the same thing. They're trying to take the invisible and make it visible. There's something they see that they want you to know, so they've got to get it out of them, paint it, sculpt it, sing it, draw it, bring their dream to life. But in Jesus, he is the embodiment of our dream. The wildest hopes of our imagination came true. God became man. Heaven came to earth. Beauty personified. The word became flesh. He enters our story to redeem us and to transform us into a new work of art, so to speak. On Mondays here, uh, we usually preview the, uh, the you know, previous Sunday's service, what went well, things we would change, not change, what we do different next time. Well, a few months back, we were going over the sermon portion, and Andrew had preached the day before. And I asked him if he could share this story, if I could share this story. He's, and like most speakers, when you're done, you can second-guess yourself, you know, um, what, you, what you said, what you shouldn't have said, how you would have done it differently. So after the service, he went into the Pisgah Forest, and it ended up before a big waterfall, he said. And he said he was standing there before the waterfall, just his head filled with negativity, and then he said he could suddenly notice the roar of the waterfall drowning out his negativity. And he said as he stood before that, he began to feel God's love rush over him, saying, reminding him to be still and quiet, to listen to who I am and what I say about you and not what you're saying about yourself. God was speaking to him through a waterfall. He's constantly speaking to us. And you say, well, okay. Yeah, but Andrew's a believer, and so he's going to be looking for these things in nature, right? He, he can see these things because he has on lenses of a believer. Okay. Well, let me give you two other stories. I remember years ago, we had a theater group come here to this, to this church to do a night of sketches. And at some point, I was backstage talking to one of the actresses, and she was from New York. She was a professional actress. And I was just, we started talking, and at some point, we got to her conversion story. And I said, uh, you know, tell me your story. And she said, well, she said, I didn't grow up in church. I didn't, I wasn't believing in God. She said, I was in my apartment cutting an artichoke. 
And she said, all of a sudden, it just hit me from the complexity and the intricate design of the artichoke. There has to be a God. There has to be a God. From an artichoke. And it ended up leading her to faith. One more. From Scribbling in the Sand, Michael Card, he tells the story. They're sneaking Bibles into China. Okay? They end up in the basement of this building, and they're getting ready to, to talk about Jesus. And there's a group full of young people, and he says, one young woman speaks up, and she says this. He said, she spoke of the spiritual struggle of growing up in the shadow of communism, where the official doctrine dictated against any belief in God. She told us, however, that ever since she was a little girl, she had found her heart resonated with the beauty in nature. She described a series of epiphanies. First, there was a sunset that caused a deep stirring in her soul that she could not put into words. Then there was a time when the simple beauty of the flowers in her mother's garden spoke to her of a simplicity for which her heart yearned. Simply by observing the beauty in nature, she had become convinced of the existence of not simply a benign God, but a loving, caring Father. Imagine the joy I experienced when I learned that he had a name, that his name was Jesus. Started with sunset and flowers. Nobody handed her a track. No, it's not a sermon. How is God doing that? How is he speaking to us in that way? Well, part of it is you obviously need to be listening. Ken Geyer says in his book, Windows, again, he says, it is God who opens the window, not us. All we can do is receive or not receive what is offered there. Uh, I remember Steve Brown when he was here years ago. Steve Brown used to have a saying about conversion. And it goes like this. I took the first step. God took the second step. Then I realized God took the first step. <laughs> I just thought I took the first step. He was already wooing me, drawing me. We hunger and long for beauty. We long to be connected with it, to be united with it, to know and be known. We, we want a love affair. We want something that's in all the movies that talk about love stories, but we don't believe it's real. It's like this scene. I'm in love with you. Not just from tonight. I've known you for a long time. I know that you come out from work at noon every day and you fight your way out that door and then you get pushed back in and three seconds later you come back out again. And I, I walk with you to lunch and I know if it's a good day if you stop and get that romance novel at that bookstore. I know what you order and I know on Wednesdays you go to that Timson parlor and I know that you get a jawbreaker before you go back into work. And I know you hate your job and you don't have many friends and I know sometimes you feel a little uncoordinated and you don't feel as wonderful as everybody else and feeling as alone and separate as you feel you are and I love you. I love you. <laughs> and I think you're the greatest thing since Spice Racks. And I've been knocked out several times. If I could just have that first kiss, and I won't, I won't be distant. I'll come back in the morning, and I'll call you if you let me. But I still don't drink coffee. 
You're real. <laughs> Aren't you? You're real. We want somebody that knows us like that, inside and out, knows all of our shortcomings, and yet still loves us. And we don't deserve it. We want someone that will enter our world, rescue us, help us to change. We want that kind of story. That's what we want, and that's what we have in Jesus. Tolkien said this about uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection. He calls it the great eucatastrophe. He says, The Gospels contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance. And among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. Art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. The wildest possible thing of our imagination became true. God became man. Ultimate conflict and resolution. The story underneath all stories. So back to the passage. Bezalel is instructed to, to create these pieces with, with wonder and artistic design. And here's the thing. We now have in us, through the work of Jesus, that same spirit. That same spirit that was poured into him is offered to us. The same spirit that was a part of the beginning of creation calling us to, to scribble in the sand, to touch on human aches, and to showcase where those longings come from. Listen to this uh, talk with Bono as he talks about the role of artists. Jesus drawing in the sand. Yeah. Why, did he, why was he drawing in the sand? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, he's an artist. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. Yeah, well, and it, wasn't for, it wasn't, wasn't for anyone else. Right. We don't know what he was drawing in the sand. No, we don't. He was drawing us. Yes, he was. We love that. Others have observed, and you have described yourself as having this prophetic proclivity, calling to speak out things. I think, and this is controversial, and I can't quite back this up, but if the job of the prophet is to describe the, the state of the soul, the soul of the city, if we want to know really what's going on you gotta really go look at the art go look at the graffiti go listen to the hip-hop coming out of the ghetto blasters and some of it's strong stuff but it's honest mm. it's reflecting the real state of soul. Mm. So, so getting it out in the open is very very important mm. and so art even if it's done for the most flippant reasons mm. it's it's revelatory mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's just by its nature from going back to cave paintings, people make marks mm -hmm. to describe how they feel. Mm -hmm. So we're finding out through art how people feel. Sure. And that's really good. As a pastor, what you, I presume, want from your congregation mm. is to know how they feel. That's really critical, isn't it? So I think all art, I wouldn't just put U2's art mm. separate as like being super special in that. But we, I think all art is prophetic. One word of encouragement to a room full of pastors 
ministers, priests, who were interested in the arts, didn't know what to do or where to begin, what word of encouragement do you give them? Listen. Look for the drawing in the sand. What word of encouragement would you give to young artists? Draw in the sand. I say this because it is my own aspiration to listen more, to be silent more, to both draw in the sand more and to look for the drawing in the sand. Jesus drawing in the sand. So there's a lot there, and I know we're running out of time, so just a few applications. I, this stuff's so much fun to talk about. I, I, I could go on forever. Um, just a few applications. So what does it look like for us as believers and as a church to draw in the sand? What are a few applications? You know, whether it's in worship, whether it's moving outward. You know, I remember early on, I'll give you a few examples, things we've learned along the way. I remember early on when we first got in this building, we struggled. I don't know if you know, I mean, you go back and look at some tapes, like this stage was bare. We had nothing on this stage, no cloth, nothing. I remember talking to an artist early on, and one of the artists said, I said, what did you think of the service last week? And she said, uh, I couldn't look up. I was like, what are you talking about? You couldn't look up? She said, it was just so ugly and so bare, and there's no purpose to it. I had to just stare at my bulletin the whole message. I was like, really? Wow. And it's kind of like the tech person, you know, if you've ever run sound where you can hear the ticking in the speakers, but nobody else can. You're the person who's like, I wish they would fix that, you know? No one, everyone else is like, what are you talking about? I don't hear that, you know? You know, it's one thing to be obsessed, but it's another, you know, but there's a, there's good reason that you're distracted. It's the way we're wired. So we've worked on that. We've worked on these things over the years. We've tried to get better at it. These paintings on the walls, if you've ever heard the story of these, okay? We fought these walls for years where they were so tall and there's nothing on them and just felt bare and it felt like the balcony was disconnected from the stage, like, like it was almost observing from up there. So we were like, well, we got to connect this. So we made the paintings go up to the balcony with a team and we, start, we created things with mystery and design and abstract so it could fit any series, but it could also make you think and wonder and maybe feel something. And then... Carol Bomer, local artist, created these two pieces, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, Jesus. So it all comes to him. It's all about him. I bet you didn't even know all that was true, huh? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of purpose to this. We've done that, obviously, in sketches, clips, plays. We're constantly doing these things, not just to try and make the service relevant or fun. We're trying to show the beauty, the wonder that we're constantly pointing to God in all of creation, and we do it in Christian and secular songs. You had Patrick a few weeks ago referring to foreigner. You know, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Back from the 80s. Yacht Rock, by the way. Few other quick things. So we obviously have done it in worship. We've done it outward. We uh, did a lot of things early on in the years. We had to tighten it up, you know, in the mid 2000s because of our budget. And you know, we may get back to it at, at some point. But early on, man, we were doing plays, concerts, all kinds of things. But I remember having this conversation with the artist, and we had this this image in our head that if that if Jesus is the world's perfect diamond. Okay, if he, if he is the source of everything that's good and beautiful and perfect, well, then in worship, our job is to use all these pieces and artistic things to hold up his finished work. 
and what he's done and to clearly point to the reason and purpose of that diamond. But in events, what we would do is we would focus on like just a facet of the diamond. So maybe it would be like forgiveness or mercy or compassion or community. We would just pick one thing that reflected his character and nature. And then we would go and we would reach out to Flat Rock Playhouse and we'd do a play together. And in that process, as we joined together in doing a play, all of the cast, everyone involved, we would be wrestling with these themes together and we'd begin to have these natural, organic conversations. And of course, it would come out through the event too. But we did that a lot. And, and, and God was constantly speaking through those things. And I look forward to, at some point, doing more. But it's like the scene um, from National Treasure where at the end, you know, where they finally find the treasure they've been looking for. You got that? Just let it play behind me. Yeah. You know, they constantly find, and they're constantly looking for the treasure. They finally find it. But the room is even bigger than they imagined. And the riches go on forever. That's our job as believers, as artists, to constantly unpack and explore and dig up and showcase his riches in the gospel. And we're holding that up every week. Now you say, as an artist, or I mean as someone in the body, you might say, and I'll say this in closing, you might say, well, I'm not an artist, so that's the job of the artist. Well, first of all, I would argue, it's in you. That creativity is in you. Maybe you're good at making cookies or building cabinets, but that creativity is in you. But what is the real goal and the real role? Well, I would say this, um, you know, as I was preparing for this, it was, it was both a good nostalgic journey, but it was also, uh, I was repentant because I was reminded of some ways that um, some of the things that we did I didn't slow down and enjoy it. Bright, my son Bryce turned me on to a podcast called The Office Ladies. Any of y'all heard that? It's a great podcast. It's Pam and Angela from The Office, and, and they, they unpack each episode in the series, and they give you all the tidbits behind it. But you know, I've listened to that a lot, and as I've listened to it, I'm constantly reminded of the community and collaboration that they had. They were having so much fun, and they were so connected with each other that it came out in the show. And there were ways that I'm also, I have been sad and a little repentant because I remember we did a lot of cool things, but, you know, those who know me well know that I can get so caught up on that task that I can miss the artist for the art, that I'm so excited about that play or that concert or that thing that we're going to do that I don't slow down and enjoy the community. And I look forward to, to changing that more and more. So Van Gogh said this. I'll say, show you two things and I'll close. Van Gogh said, I feel there is nothing more truly artistic than to love people. So even if you don't claim to be an artist, then you can get creative about how you love people, how you connect people, and how you point to him everywhere and that he is speaking all the time. So in summary, his beauty is all around us. That same spirit that's in Bezalel is now in us. It's in us. And that beauty is now being worked through us as we're being made into his image. Michael Card says this. He says, God is beautiful. His beauty demands a response that is shaped by beauty. 
And that is art. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the source of all that's good and beautiful and true. Whether I realize it in my life every day, whether I am chasing something that I feel like is all about me and has nothing to do with you, you're still there, still wooing us, still drawing us, still showing us that you are calling us to yourself. Thank you for entering our world. Thank you for offering your life and spirit to rescue us, and now you are making us new into your image, the image of all that's good and true. Remind us of that again today as we, as we look at your word and as we, as we sing. You're beautiful. Amen.